What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. Today's show mentions partying, weed, and alcohol. Okay, so today's 180 is not like any we've done. Out of all the shows we've recorded so far, you've seen the most trouble from this show. And Mike DiVirgilio is an everyday guy. But the part I think the enemy doesn't want you to hear? A complete stranger talked to Mike. We're taught this lie that we just can't talk to strangers about the good news. But Mike DiVirgilio was just minding his own business, and a stranger who was driving by in The Love Bug just pulls over, gets out, tells Mike about Jesus, leaves, and Mike's never the same. Welcome to Mike's 180. I was going for the Herbie the Love Bug vibe with the music. <laughs> What do you think? Mike, welcome to 180. We are really excited to have you today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Yeah. So here we are. Let's get started, man. I'm excited. So we like to start with just a random question. So I got one for you. Ready for it? I don't know. We'll find out. Okay. That's usually the answer. People are like, I don't know. The, the question is this. So what photo opportunity did you miss that you regret? Well, I'm not a big stargazer, but maybe when I was into golf and saw Tiger Woods and was too like, I don't like to bother people. That might be pretty cool given who he is and what he's accomplished. Oh yeah. But I'm the kind of person that, you know, there's somebody you see that, you know, or is famous. I don't want to bother. So. Yeah. That's very polite of you. Some people just break in. Well, that's awesome. Let's get into your story. You have a great story. So talk to our listeners about where you grew up. Well, I was born and raised in LA and grew up in two towns called Whittier and Hacienda Heights. And all my family, as you could tell from DiVirgilio, the name is kind of Italian. So all my relatives came from Sicily through Boston and Brooklyn and had just a great upbringing. I have fond memories, even though there was some certain challenges to it all, 60s and the 70s. Yeah. Oh, for sure. What are some of your memories of childhood or just growing up with your family? Well, the Italianness of it. Our family was very into the, my dad and mom, Italian thing. And so like every Sunday for all of our life, we had pasta. Sunday sauce, the red sauce, literally every Sunday. And family and extended family. If you look at the two sides of my family, so on my mother's side, the calmest, Mm -hmm. kindest people you'd ever imagine. My dad's side, every stereotype of every Italian family that you've ever seen that's crazy and (laughs) argues all the time. And that that was that side of the family. They were, yeah, it was interesting seeing those two side by side, but it was great. It was fun. Did you consider yourself a a pretty good kid? Yeah, I think so. Because I remember those who weren't, and I never really wanted to be like those people. So I attribute a lot of that to my upbringing and teaching respect. And that's a very kind of traditional cultural thing. 
being respectful of others. And so, yeah, I mean, you do your stuff, right? In your rebellious ways. Right. What was your, what was your like parents like your dad, mom? Well, my father was a stereotypical kind of type A, interesting fellow, very hard on me specifically. So there was some interesting dynamic about being in that family because my mother was kind of there to support. My dad was always trying to correct me, make me better, whatever in his eyes. And so that could be challenging because he didn't abuse, but verbally it was a challenge living with him. I appreciate a lot of what he did now because he was the man of the family, the leader, the provider. And so I learned right. those lessons from him there, but I also learned what I don't want to be. So he gave me positive examples from a negative example, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because, you know, everything was an argument and it was just a grading sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to hear. What would you say the best part of being in your family was like, and also you talked to us a little bit about the faith component. The best part is family, just the togetherness, the commitment to one another. And at that time, probably more than it is now, you know, all of our family was close. So you knew your cousins, you knew all the extended family get together on all the holidays. Mm -hmm. So that was great. Um, and the faith hmm. thing was, well, grew up Catholic because it's typical for Italians and yeah. pretty much, I would say a nominal Catholic upbringing, which you know, it was cultural, right? So my dad always said, I'm an Italian Catholic Democrat and I'll never change. And that's just what he was. So you do that. You go to yeah. church on Sunday, you go to mass and <clears throat> you have your pasta and it's just part of the thing, but never really made an impact on your life per se. But it also, it gave me a foundation of believing in Christianity, even though I had really no knowledge of it. I wasn't, you know, aware of everything about it. It gave me a respect for God's word because every Sunday you hear it, they have these short sermons called homilies. So we had those and you hear it read and just grew to appreciate it, believed in God and a conscience. God always gave me a conscience, thankfully. Yeah. At this time, what were your thoughts about God just personally? Well, it wasn't that he was real personal, but he was there. I never doubted that, but it just wasn't a real personal relationship. If you don't know Catholicism, it can be going through motions and these kinds of things. I know today a lot of very pious and faithful Catholics who have a relationship with Jesus and very personal, and but it can just be rote. And that's what it was like. Yeah. I didn't think God had to do with kind of real life. You do it once a week yeah. on Sunday. Yeah. So what would you say? I, I want to come back to that, the high school world and everything. I had an experience when I was 16, 17 at a party. And back then in the seventies, smoking and drinking, smoking pot and all that was just kind of what you did for fun. And was at a party and I saw these jocks pinching these girls on the behind. And I was so ticked off. I said, you know, there's gotta be love. And this I remember that phrase in my brain, still to this day, said, there's got to be love somewhere in the world, but it's not in religion. So I've been doing that. Hmm. And I don't know why that thought's got in my head, but when I was exposed to the Bible, I believed it. Not a question. Yeah. yeah. And there's this poem from 1890 called The Hound of Heaven. And it's just what it sounds like. Yeah, God's after me. And there was markers along the way before I got to college and met Jesus personally that God used. They were pretty cool. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, take us as you're growing older. How did things change and evolve maybe through high school? Before I got to high school, this was a very profound moment in my life. I'm 12 or 13. We had just moved. And I remember standing out in front of the house in the front yard. I'm looking up at the sky, the stars. And these thoughts started to come into my brain. My dad almost died in a car wreck when he was in the service at 18 and supposedly went through the windshield and they didn't wear seatbelts or whatever. And I thought, if my dad died, I wouldn't be here. And then I went on a regression. So if my mom's side didn't come here and if my dad's side didn't come, my mom and dad would have never met. And then I just went on back and back. So I thought, I guess I'm meaningless. And by that time in American culture, Darwinian evolution, you know, you're basically a chance happening. That's really all you are. The way I phrase it now is hmm. we're just lucky dirt. I had imbibed that worldview. So at 12 or 13, I was thinking, man, I don't really have purpose or anything. So the consciousness of these bigger things in life has just been there. And then when I was 16, my grandmother, who was a very faithful Catholic, gave me a book called The Robe. It was made into a movie in the 50s, pretty popular back then. A wonderful story about one of the centurions at the foot of the cross. You know, he went to Jesus' robe and it ends up changing his life. And what fascinated me about it is that he would go around through the Judean countryside interacting with all kinds of people. And everywhere he went, people got better. And I go, ah, that's beautiful. That it's attractive. If I could be that kind of person or people could actually get along and so on and so forth. And then in 1977, Easter, there was a miniseries called Jesus of Nazareth. And that was powerful to me because, again, I'd read the robe. Jesus was intriguing. And now Franco Zifferelli was the director and he made Jesus very, I call it the conundrum that is Jesus because he confuses everybody. Nothing he says right. people expect. He does things people don't expect. He treats people like right. the Samaritan woman, like his disciples talking to a Samaritan woman. It just makes no sense. He confused people. So I had all of these things when I was confronted with the gospel for the first time before I went off to college. Hmm. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Well, uh, I was at a party having a smoke outside with a buddy of mine and a VW bug. They're driving across the street. There's some guys and a guy in the back and stops. Guy in the back hops out, walks over toward us. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to get shot or what's going on here. And he says, God told me to get out of this car and ask you something. If you died right now, would you go to heaven? <laughs> so, uh, hmm. Yes, I haven't murdered anybody. I guess, you know, pretty good guy. And he goes, it's not enough. God wants your all. And he quoted John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He was only forgotten son. That so ever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he said some other things which I don't remember, but I do remember very much, God wants your all. So he left. So last ever saw, I can't wait to see him in eternity. Like, dude, <laughs> do you know those words that when you got out of the backseat of that B-dub, and this is an old B-dub, right? This is like the, yeah. this is the old style. Anyway, it's just, it's just fascinating to me that God told him he need listened. This guy just comes out of nowhere, just for no reason. That just doesn't happen every day. What were you thinking about that? I was thinking that, so my buddy's pretty much a heathen, and he just laughed. Eh, well, how stupid was that or whatever? I went home and on the way home, I thought, God must think a lot of me to have this guy come out of nowhere to tell me this. Why did I have the response? I have no idea. Other than God, the hound of heaven, he was after me. 
as much as you remember that conversation, take us to that dialogue. What was that conversation like? Well, just that he confronted. He walked straight yeah. at us in a beeline, no small talk, just said, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Wow. That's intense. Well, yeah, it sort of was because, so in Catholicism, you really can't know you're saved. That's a whole long theological conversation, but that concerned me because I didn't want to go to hell. And I believed in that. You believed in? In hell. Yeah. Okay. I believed in right and wrong. I believed that I was a sinner. In fact, in one of the homilies, probably when I was 17, it was on Luke 18 and the Pharisee goes up and said, I'm not like the tax collector. Mm -hmm. I give all this and I'm a pretty good guy. And, and then the tax collector, which tax collectors in the first century Jews were traitors and not good people. And he beat his chest, looked down and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man, not the Pharisee, went away justified. And I figured, I don't know if I could pull off this Christianity thing, but I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll beat my breast and look down and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, to be justified. Wow, I didn't even know what that meant. Thanks for listening to 180. We really appreciate your likes and shares. Please consider leaving us a review on your favorite pod player. Now, back to the show. So that conversation and that question is ideal because can I? And just this idea of whatever he said, other than God wants your all in John 3, 16, it was God loves you. He wants your all. Yeah. God loves you. He wants your all. I thought, God wants your all. You're a priest or you're a nun or something like that. Which for average folks, you go to church on Sunday for your hour, you go off, you make a living, you go do your thing. And so that concept was right. new. So on the way home, I'm buzzing like, wow, okay, God cares about me. That's a trip. And I go to open the family Bible, which is this gargantuan Bible, which of course is never read. It's got all these beautiful pictures and artwork. Right. And so I opened it up and I started Matthew for some reason. And I get five chapters in and 528. And she says, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, it is hard. He's already committed adultery. Wow. And I closed it up and I said, I'm out. Yeah. Wow. I'm out. I don't think I can do this. You know, you're a hormone adult, 17, 18 year old. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So. I just knew it wasn't for me, but of course that experience doesn't leave you. Mm -hmm. I mean, if God's working at you. Yeah. So the hound of heaven. Yeah. So how did things progress? Well, so that was a few weeks before I went off to college, like in July of 78. So I went to Arizona state partly to get away from my dad because it was six hours. Mm. It so happens I move into this dorm called best hall and next door neighbors are two Jesus freaks. Come on. That's awesome. I had no chance. He'll get his people. So one night they're going through the dorms, inviting people to a Bible study. And they asked me the perfect question. They said, would you like to come to a Bible study about what the Bible says about who Jesus is? Hmm. And that's the right question. Cause you know, the robe, you know, just intrigued me and there's not a lot of Jesus in it, but that what there is, and it affects this guy so profoundly and wow. And then Jesus of Nazareth, it was like, uh, th this is amazing. And I would mm -hmm. like to know, you know, even though I went mm -hmm. to church every Sunday for all those years, I just didn't really have a sense of what that is. Probably more because I wasn't listening than it wasn't taught. Right, right. So I did. 
And during that, we read through the beginning of John, the gospel of John, learning Jesus was the word full of grace. I remember him asking me, he says he's full of grace and truth. It's like, what is that? It's like, I have no clue. Now, truth, justice, grace, mercy, unmerited favor that is who Jesus is for us. It was powerful. Yeah, that's amazing. So what happened at this study? Well, afterwards, a guy named Jim, he said, I want to show you something, an illustration called the bridge. And I happen to be in Arizona yeah. where there's the Grand Canyon. So uh, there's a bridge and there's two sides. One side of the Grand Canyon is God. One side is us. And then Jesus is the cross that you can go over to God. And he's the mediator between God and man. And he quoted some different verses and that you could be saved. You could go to heaven when you die, which was key concern for me. And it's like, yeah, do you want to do this? You want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, it was a struggle because all I can think of was now I can't party and have fun anymore. So I did. I prayed with him. And this was in the fall of 78. C.S. Lewis said he was the most re reluctant convert in all of England. I don't know if I was the most reluctant convert in all of, let's say, Arizona, but I was reluctant and I was miserable and I just didn't want to do it, but I like had no choice. I had to do it. I had to accept this offer because it's eternal life. Are you kidding me? Right, right. And again, growing up Catholic, my understanding is you just, something you're worried about all the time. You never attained it. You have to keep work. So here I just have to believe, trust. Yeah. So I'm in. Wow. I'm in. It blows your mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because the hunger was, they give me a Bible and I'm just like, I got to know this. Found a church that some of the guys went to and it was an incredible journey. So were you with your Bible study group? No, this was just me and him. It wasn't a group of people I would pray in front of. That I might not have even done. Yeah. And so you responded to Christ after he gave the bridge Illustration, correct. Illustration. Okay. Wow. And they, and they were part of a group called the Navigators. Some people might have heard of them, just campus Christian organization. And I ended up staying involved with them while I was in college. But that rest of the first semester. So of course the question for me is if this is real, if God is real, he deserves my all. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. Yeah. What did C.S. Lewis said? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's of no importance. If he did, it's of all importance, but it can't be moderately important. Mm -hmm. It's either all or nothing. Yeah. Right. But you know, you have to count the cost. Am I willing to follow him and give up whatever I think I might have to give up? And so I struggled with that for quite a while. I went back to junior college spring semester of the next year mm -hmm. and learning and going to church. I found through a friend of my sister, E.V. Free in Fullerton, which Chuck Swindoll, who a lot of people know, famous preacher. And I started going to that church and just learning and decided, yeah, I'm in. This is it. It's amazing. What was that like for you when you decided? Did you feel a change immediately? How did that feel? Well, no. So I listened to a lot of testimonies and it's fascinating to me how God brings people to himself and how all of the testimonies are different and the stories are different and the way God uses is different. Hmm. And there's a, some people who it just happens and boom. And for me, the reality, I mean, I knew it, I decided this is real and I got to go after it. But as I say now that something called the pain of sanctification, like growing in Christ is hard and uh, taught my kids all their life. You know, there's nothing easy. And if you're going to grow, God is going to challenge you at every step. 
because it's friction, resistance that helps you to grow as a human being. Hmm. And we don't. No. So that was just the beginning of this, what now, 43-year journey or 78 to 23, whatever it is. Wow. But, it, you know, it was just consuming. My, my parents got worried because I was in the cult now. <laughs> and that I was not a Catholic anymore really was offensive to my father. For sure. He even, even disowned me for a few days. And his Jewish boss said, he'll never come back if you disown him. I mean, what, what do you get from that? Mm -hmm. Wow. So he accepted me again. But he would always call me the born again. Whenever he introduced me to anybody, oh, there's the born again. There's the born again. And then when I introduced him to my wife and she's the born again too. So there's the born again. And that phrase was very common back then for evangelical Christians who found Jesus and all that stuff. Yeah. The born agains. What's well, so interesting, because you've got the whole section with uh, Nicodemus, like you got to be born again. Like it's right there. You just open up the word. It's important. It's interesting because in the seventies, you had the Jesus freaks. I love that phrase, by the way. Yeah. And the hippies and all of the movements of Calvary Chapel and these hippies playing Christian music now. And so it was a phenomenon. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Evangelicals becoming culturally powerful back then. And yeah. What were some spiritual truths that you really started to understand? Well. The navigators are huge into scripture memory. So we started to do that. And so basically when I went back, I was like, I'm in hundred percent. So I got involved. So for the next three years, I was involved in the ministry and we did evangelism. It was really kind of a great college experience. Mm -hmm. But just focused on my relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of what they're about. So it's not terribly theological orientation, which is what I, I see things a lot differently now after all these years, but it was me and the Bible and that relationship and building it. And it took priority over everything and then sharing it with others. Hmm. But as far as how you viewed God, would you say that there were some things that kind of started to snap into place about who he was? Well, yeah, I mean, the gospel. So. Christ, forgiveness, atonement, yeah, Jesus being the punishment for our sins, and then knowing you can be saved, which was huge given that I didn't want to go to hell. Right, yeah. Here you go. Right, right. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the and you will be saved. There's no ambiguity. Yeah. You will be saved. But that salvation is something that's worked out in your life, like Paul says, with fear and trembling, and it's a process of learning to depend on God for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and I came across Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Is There. And Francis Schaeffer was an apologist, 60s and 70s, and died in the mid 80s or something. And that was powerful to me because I found out that Christianity is about all of life. It's a worldview. God's truth applies to all things. And that started to open up my whole world. Mm -hmm. And that first got me interested in apologetics. Because remember, it was like, if this is true, I'm in. Right. And now I found out that there's actually evidence, right. logical reasons. There's a ton of it that can be validated. It's not pie in the sky, fairy tales like the skeptics say it is. It's actually historically, archaeologically, philosophically can be defended. Right. 
And many people who seek to disprove Christianity, I think, come to faith. I've heard so many stories of people who have gotten into apologetics because they were trying to disprove Christianity and then they studied and realized, I don't really have a case. Like, it's really amazing. Yeah. And you're, you're in the apologetics realm right now. Is that right? Yeah, that started it. Yeah. And then learned about it through just reading. And when I graduated from college, I thought I might want to stay the, at the college and be involved in ministry, but I decided against it mm -hmm. and try to make a living and get a job and all that stuff. And then God had other plans. And I ended up going actually to seminary when I was 26. Mm. And when I was 24, or I was introduced to something called Reformed theology. People might know it as Calvinism. And it sort of changed my orientation from Christianity being about what I can do and accomplish, but what God has accomplished and done for me. Okay. There was a lot of freedom in that because Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And so it's all him. And then he kind of works it out as we work it out. It's all just amazing. So that was a profound happening in my life. That's why I'm here and have the life I have now. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about your book, Uninvented? Well, so going back to the question about apologetics, I went to seminary, but I, I never really felt called to ministry mm -hmm. and met my wife there. It's a place called Westminster in Philadelphia. So I go all the way across the country and my wife's there. It's the last thing I ever expected to happen. And so I was initially going to go into academia something like that, be scholarship, but then we're going to get married in five more years of school. Just, I don't think I could do that. Right. So we ended up actually living in Pennsylvania for 10 years and there's a good focus of apologetics there, but then life got on. I was building business and doing this and that. So that wasn't really a focus because of other things. But when we started to have children, I was always defending Christianity, the truth of it to my children, hmm. proving to them that the reason we believe this isn't because it makes us happy or it makes us better parents or kids or whatever. It's because it's true. Right. Yeah. That's the bottom line. That's right. My daughter wants the greatest story. We're on the way home from church and I'm lecturing as I always did. And my son at the time was like seven or eight and he goes, dad, why are you always lecturing us? And I was sort of taken aback and my daughter goes, well, Dominic, daddy's always teaching. And it was like, oh, oh, that's awesome. It was so touching. Yeah. So I did apologetics with my children in a way, always, because this is true. Yeah. This is real. This is not a scam. I had this apologetics encounter with a coworker and I was embarrassed how bad I was because hmm. I just hadn't practiced. And since the eighties, there had been an explosion of apologetics resources right. out there. I mean, it's just a wealth of riches today. It's just beautiful. So I started learning and reading and growing in my ability to do that. And in 2015, I'd always written for, for blogs and things. And so I hear this story about a young lady who grew up in a Christian home. She goes off to college, loses her faith right away. And I was ticked because mm. I thought that would never happen to my kids because I've taught them all their life. This thing is true. And so I decided to write a book. And that was a sort of late in life becoming an author. That was called The Persuasive Christian Parent, How to Build an Enduring Faith in You and Your Children. Mm -hmm. And then in that process, I kept growing in my apologetics knowledge. I kept coming across arguments that a specific story in the Bible or passage couldn't be invented. And then I was reading and writing my way through the Bible. It's like, wow, 
that couldn't be, it kept coming up in my brain. So I decided to write a book on it. That's really neat. Yeah. It's, it's very cool because all Christians don't believe the Bible's just made yeah. up stories, right? But some of us think, well, it could be. And I argue it's impossible, especially given the Jewish nature of Jesus's world. Just don't make up a Messiah like Jesus. Right. Yeah. And everybody who's listening, you can always just check out our show notes and you'll find a link directly to Mike's book on there and links to a lot of different other things that Mike commented on in the show. Actually, if you're looking on Spotify, it's the see more button. And while you're there, make sure you also hit the check mark and follow us so that you can catch more episodes. So Mike, that's really amazing. And I'm going to have to check that book out because apologetics is something that I have been getting into. And it's something that I think is really important in today's world because it's really a matter of just defending the faith. And like you said, it's believing something that's true. And we really serve the living true God. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you bring up there is that for 300 years, as I talk about a little bit in the book, we as Christians have been on the defensive since the Enlightenment. Like, they don't have to prove anything, but we do. Right, right. But there's always an alternative belief, and you have to defend yours. And it's very cool because when you allow God and you seek him, ask, seek, and knock, and he works in you, then you can help others. And that's what the Christian life is about. It's about love. It's about service. And it blows my mind because back in my navigator days, I was like, I would like to be a wise man. I want to be wise. I didn't know at the time how painful it would be for God to build wisdom in me. That's why I tell my kids I would never want to be young again because it's just too painful to learn all the stuff you have to learn to truly be wise. And then to see what God has done and help others because of what he's done for you and in you. And it's just, uh, it's such a blessing. Yeah, that's amazing. All because some drive-by evangelists come by. And, well, not all because that God used it, but that's such a, an amazing thing to look back at and go, wow, maybe I should do that. Yeah. Mike, for our last question, could you just picture yourself back at Arizona State, just doing your own thing? What would have been different if you hadn't had that strange encounter with the love bug guy? That's an impossible question to answer. Well, see, it had to happen. But to think of going through life without a true North Star, hmm. just thinking you are lucky dirt. Yeah. And that's about it. Trying to find meaning, hope, and fulfillment in this. Right. I just finished reading Ecclesiastes. It's all meaningless under the sun, you know? And, and, and no matter how great it is in our lives, nothing truly fulfills us. Right. Because there's something else, a home somewhere else that, that is truly going to fulfill us. And we get taste of that here. It's just a beautiful thing. But to think that I would be that person who didn't, it's impossible, but it's inconceivable, truly in the nature of that word. That, because if God didn't use that guy, he would have used someone else. Right. It's just, I totally believe that, that he, you know, those whom he chooses, he will get. And again, I've heard that so many testimonies. What do you think, this is kind of a follow-up question here, but when people say that we can only share the gospel through friendship evangelism, what do you feel about that? My story sort of kind of contradicts that. God is always convicting me. One of the things I've done with my book, The Uninvented, is to give it away. So whenever I would encounter somebody, I would say, hey, here you go, here's a book you like mm -hmm. to read mm -hmm. or whatever. And if I don't do that, it's like, 
doesn't have to be the book, but just, I need to bring this up because I may never see this person again. God may want to use me for that. A lot of people are, are intimidated by that. And the culture, which magnifies secularism and just people, that's good for you. It's personal and all that. But yeah, I try to be at least a little annoying for Jesus. That's <laughs> a little bit. Right. And then if you give, and then you see how people respond mm -hmm. by saying something with God in it, or I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but like somebody will say, oh, have a blessed day. Like person who's checking you out at a store or something. So I would say, okay, so that's interesting. Are you a Christian? And if they're not, it's an opportunity if they are. Right. So I absolutely think that uh, we could all do that more. And, uh, you know, it's got to be in you where you just have to, you can't hold it in. It's like, I need to tell people about this because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. In your life, I don't care how great a life you think you have. That's right. Without Jesus, it's nothing. Not to mention eternity. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been so great talking to you, Mike. I really just appreciate you and thankful for your devotion to the Lord and to sharing the gospel with people. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Well, thank you. It's a total blast. I, I love it. I haven't done my testimony in a long time in a long format like this, so it was fun and I appreciate it. I hope it touches folks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it will. I hope you enjoyed today's show. So maybe you didn't have a complete stranger share Jesus with you, but what's your story? Let us know by filling out the Share Your Story button on our website. The link is in our show notes. And share this 180 with your people. It might be the best news they hear today. Today's send-off features poet Nico Hayes, who wrote this in honor of Mike's story. If you want to be a part of a send-off, let us know at stories at 180podcast.com. On the road to endless light, there are many we pass by, faces of strangers and friends, too blind to see the sky. Come, hear their silent cries for love and a lifeline. Maybe the winding path of the new life we find is a king's rescue plan, a beacon that outshines the darkness in their eyes. So. Let's point our gaze up high, inviting them to do the same until the king gives them sight, hand in hand and now remade on the road to endless light. 180 is a production of One Way Ministries.